that's what, this is the thing that makes it so so difficult um because like sure there are problems with we can like we should be able to have a grown-up conversation about puberty blockers and so on but because we're not we're not at all having sane conversations we've actually it's just it's become like a a, a position issue like abortion and whoever gets in power is just going to smash the other side the death of god is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between so between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Well, hello, Ashley Frawley, on many times before. Uh, yes, I look back really fondly, actually, at the very first time that I was on this podcast, which was uh, 11 years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, I didn't know it was that long ago, but um, so that would have been 2012. Yep. And I remember it was a really big deal for me because I was a really big fan. (laughs) And it had been a goal, you know, like when I finish my PhD, I'm going to go places. I'm going to be on that podcast. (laughs) I love that that was a goal. And and you had just written The Semiotics of Happiness? I had just finished my PhD and I was in the process of turning the PhD into a book. Right. And we talked about happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And I was yeah. full and, of energy. And <laughs> it's one of the best interviews I've probably ever given, actually. Um, if anybody can find it and go and have a listen. It was, but uh, yeah, I was, I was young and it was very, um, not that I'm not young now, you know, I was younger. <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, you know, I was raring to go for sure. And you can hear that like youthful optimism that is slowly squeezed out of you as you get older. <laughs> Well, what I um, recall is I was already old then. <laughs> and what freaks me out is that you are probably the same age that I am now then. No, I was a little older, I think, even then. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I, I started podcasting in 2009, the age of 38. So by 2012, I was, what, uh, 41. So, but you're, yeah. you, you're still very young, obviously. <laughs> everything's fine everything's fine nothing's fallen off yet which actually segues quite nicely why do we even care so much about being young (laughs) well that is a good question what what okay so to to set up this conversation what the reason we're having this conversation is because um first of all you are now um, more fully involved with the sublation project you're you're, I, I would say, the the second in command, my number one, if I'm going to be uh, a, a nerd about this. Um, and you and I have decided that we're going to try to turn sublation into a more focused research project. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be tackling topics, if not exactly systematically, at least in order, um, or, or in attempting to, to do them in order. And, and right now, uh, in this month, which is really March, we are uh, going to be talking about the the question of subjectivity and mm-hmm. individuality, right? And and so so yeah. So and you just asked why do we care so much about being young? And I I guess what I'd ask to, 
is why does how does that connect to questions around subjectivity and uh, maybe difficulties for human yeah. subjects or individuals today? Yeah. So at its heart, subjectivity gets at these sort of basic questions of um, what it means to be human or how a society conceptualizes its members, to mm-hmm. put it more, I guess, precisely. Um, and, you know, since the Enlightenment, um, we have certain assumptions about human subjects, supposedly anyway, the degree to which these are actually held or were ever held, um, and they're always, they've always really been contested. Um, but ostensibly anyway, um, we have a belief it, that humans, humanity is characterized by at least a capacity for reason, reflection, judgment. Um, and this underlies our basic kind of um, the basic structures of contemporary liberal societies. Like it's the reason why you can enter into contracts because it is recognized that, well, in order to enter into a contract, you have to be, have possession of reason, be able to reflect, be able to use your judgment to decide that you're going to do this. Um, It's the reason why we have uh, or at least in the United States, you have very strong beliefs about free speech because um, it's based on this notion of human beings as capable of reflection. And it's and it was it's it's important to understand how radical that was for its time. Um, now, obviously, Enlightenment thinkers were very particular about who they thought was humanity. <laughs> they were not consistent in terms of applying this, and this has been a sort of long-standing problem. But it was quite radical for its time because um, before that and and throughout a a good portion of human history up till that point, there was a very strong belief that human beings, um, that that human nature was something innate and different and carried within individuals. So it was in the nature of a slave to be a slave. It was in the nature of a king to be a king. And it was just something that grew out of <laughs> the brains of people within particular classes. And obviously capitalism blew that open. Um, and so this notion that you can be trusted to hear something was quite a radical notion. It was quite, it was quite a radical idea. Um, anyways, and so it's all of these sorts of freedoms that we take for granted and that are unevenly realized in contemporary capitalist society um, are based on certain ideas of of subjectivity. So when you look about this, look at this question of youth, um, uh, it's interesting to think about what, how our ideals of subjectivity have changed. Um, and it seems to me that we, well, generally, and this is my whole shtick, is that that kind of ideal of humanity um, has not been, um, has always been unevenly um, bestowed upon people. It's always been used as this reason to exclude people from society. So, for instance, women would be excluded from society because um, they were, you know, closer to nature. They didn't have these kinds of capacities. Um, men were closer to reason. Women were closer to to animals. Um, and so, this these were reasons to kind of keep women out of public life. Same thing for other races. Um, there was something innate about them that meant that they could not be included in all of these. Um, the, these ideals. Um, and of course, children were excluded from this. Um, what's, and what's interesting is what's happened is that there's been this kind of degradation of that ideal. As it has been unevenly realized, people have started to criticize it as unrepresentative of most people. And that's become this kind of progressive thing like, oh, these white men, they claim that they were rational. 
And instead of saying everybody was rational, like that's all human beings have this capacity, they were like, they were never rational. They were just lying to themselves. And that all of these things are just illusions. But I think actually it would have been more progressive to kind of say everybody, you know, barring obviously certain, you know, different ways of being, i.e. disability and so on, for the most part, it is a human capacity to exercise your rational judgment and so on. Um, uh, and it, there's some like huge amount of um, debate around childhood and so on. But what's interesting is what happened is that children are now looked upon as having this like reason <laughs> that adults don't have at the same time. So adults have been infantilized and children have been kind of adultified. So it's like you, you see people, I, it's like this progressive thing, like, well, I'm not going to lie to my children about Santa Claus, you know, I tell them the truth. At the same time, it's like we can't tell the truth to adults. Like, even though there are all these, there are these certain, certain truths that might be around, but people will say like, oh, yeah, we know it's not true, but we, we can't really tell the plebs because we can't really tell the masses because they'll take the information the wrong way. I'm trying to think of an example of that. Um, you know, there, this happened during like COVID-19. There were lots of kind of noble lies that people kind of knew were lies and still told them anyway, because you couldn't trust the masses. You couldn't. So it's an interesting thing how, you know, and there's like movements to recognize apes as having personhood. <laughs> so it's like apes have become more human, human become more like apes. So I don't know. So all of this has sort of happened um, um, where we've kind of lost faith in the adult world to solve the problems. And so we kind of have developed this sort of cult of youth and cult of childhood and projected our, our problems onto them, um, which is really an unfair burden to put on children. But I think, yeah, like, why would you want to grow up in that world where adults are stupid and complicit in problems? Children are the ones who are the future. So if, what are you really being socialized into when you become an adult? Nothing good. Well, I think there's that. <clears throat> but I also I think that the other side of the, the cult of youth has to do with the failure that most people experience or that many people experience in being fully um, uh, incorporated into society that mm -hmm. the, uh, and finding a, a, a role that they're comfortable with in, in society um, and that. In other words, I just was reading Eric Erickson's uh, uh, essay that where he started to set up was from 1956, where he set up the stages of human development and the formation of subjectivity of a full, fully mature, um, or at least a fully coherent ego identity, an individual subject, you know, that you identify with. Um, it happens in adolescence, according to Eric Erickson. And, you know, that's the transition from childhood to adulthood. And I think a lot of people aren't m fully making that transition, or at least that's what we're told. And um, uh, because of that, age aging is a particularly uh, horrible <laughs> because you you're watching your ability to participate in society slip away. Uh, over time without any progress so you're you, you, like if you come up against a midlife crisis it's this moment where you look back on what you've done and realize you have not completed that uh, <clears throat> uh ego 
formation, that identity formation adequately. Mm. And you need to start again. And you're too, and you're too old to really have the time and uh, ability to do it adequately now. So it's this crisis. Um, uh, so the, the, I do think that there's a, that, I mean, we have to take into account that in the early 20th century and beyond, um, you know, Freud emerged on the scene, this, the problematizing of the subject occurred. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's why people like Eric Erickson came along and said, Hey, <clears throat> you know, in order to become a subject, these are the things that you need to do. This mm -hmm. is the kind of society we need to have. These are the um, tasks that you have at each stage in your development. So you can become this bourgeois subject, this individual's rational agent. Um, and uh, at, at this point, it seems as though we're very ambivalent about the whole project. And when I say we, I think I, I probably just mean college educated uh, people in the, from the humanities primarily. Um, but, uh, and yeah, and the, so the, but the youth culture has been around for a long time. The other aspect to that is on the left, there's this feeling that that period of ego identity formation um, is also a period of uh, kind of a liminal period <clears throat> where mm -hmm. you are no longer fully controlled by your family situation. You're no longer fully in, indoctrinated or, or regimented, uh, disciplined by the family and the in your schooling, and you're also not being disciplined in the workplace, uh, or not not entirely, and you you haven't found a, a a place in the order as it is, and so there therefore you could become a radical subject. You can become, uh, <clears throat> you have the potential to be um, revolutionary because you are in this liminal space and if you could create some new kind of life for yourself uh, rather than the the life that you, that you were given or to, you don't have to necessarily reproduce the conditions that you were born into. Interesting. I, I hadn't thought of what, where's that idea of liminality as a kind of revolutionary space coming from? Um, I don't know what the, the, um, where the history of it is like you're you're good at <clears throat> tracking down where these things are coming from victor turner just, is who i usually take liminality from and and, and like studies yeah, I, I don't think that people generally think of it as a liminal space exactly but it um um i do know that if you having worked on with people on the left for quite a long time since the 90s at least um there is a focus on young people amongst mm. marxist and anarchist and left-wing causes and it's thought that the reason why young people can be reached is because they've yet to be fully incorporated into the hegemonic culture of capital and that they they and yet they are verging on being rational subjects so that they they're in this you know the the young will and there's always this idea that <clears throat> that the young will come along and this generation of leftists will be the one that can break free. We, they're, and they're so much in, they're so much further ahead than we were. That's another thing that you'll hear from older leftists. You know, they're they're so much more advanced than we are. Um, and what I think that generally means when you hear people say that is they already think the way I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what that really means. They they think in exactly the same way 
I do. I and they're they're thinking that way from the outset, and it took me, you know, five ten years before I started thinking this way and stayed this way for the rest of my life. Um, but uh, uh, anyhow, that's those are some things that I think about when it comes to, um, you know, the cult of youth, the 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 problem of aging. Um, but do you disagree that about the idea that the, the for the left the youth culture is uh potentially ripe with revolutionary potential um you know there's that old cliche that you know as you grow older you become more more conservative but Mm -hmm. i do think that any movement that is unable to speak to adults is a doomed movement (laughs) yeah no i agree i definitely agree but i i'm not saying that this is for the best i'm just saying this is something Mm -hmm. that oh no no uh, i know i was i was yeah Sort of getting my yeah, um, Um, but yeah, I I think in terms of liminality being kind of a revolutionary space, I think it can also be, um, yeah, in in the sense that it's sort of a it's a fun space and a dangerous space and so on, and and things are turned upside down. But also, it underscores the order of the rest of the world. It's not something that you know uh, by allowing you to prefigure something and imagine and live in your imagination for a little while and live out even freedom like to a certain extent you know young people who are you know maybe in university dormitories and so on famously will experiment with all sorts of things um but that world underscores the order of the rest of the world it's through disorder that you appreciate orderliness um so I don't know, just a terrible example off the top of my head. I was walking down the street recently. I live in obviously a university kind of city. And I saw like a woman, a young woman outside her dorm um, in like big fluffy slippers in the rain and her pajamas and the house coat on smoking. Um, and she's like yelling on the phone to her friends, like, I'm not yelling, but talking really, really loud on the phone to her friends. And like, I thought, haha, that's nice. Kids, you know, young people, she's, she's just having fun. But also at the same time, like, you can't really function in, the, in a world where um, people are like yelling really loudly while you <laughs> like, it's, it's like the unpredictability underscores the value of predictability. Um, so it's what allows society to function is a certain amount of predictability. You know, when you walk down the street, someone's not going to reach out and punch you in the face because one, it's illegal. But two, people just don't do that. You can predict what people will do for the most part. And that's why madness is so scary to people. It's because it's unpredictable. Um, And so this sort of, and part of the reason why our modern pluralistic societies are experienced in such a scary way as, as, as so intimidating is because it lacks that kind of predictability. You don't know, Oh, this man is talking to me in the street. I I can't vet this person anymore. That's really scary. We expect everything has become so much more predictable in our sort of institutions and everything being institutionalized. When things are outside of that sphere, it's experienced very in a very scary way because it's you can't predict what will happen. Um, so in the liminal space underscores order. Like Carnival, for instance, is the famous example of a liminal space where it's the world turned upside down. The high act as though they're low, the low act as though they're high. Um, People will air their grievances and so on. Men will cut, or women will cut men's ties. Uh, What else? Um, You know, in in some places, the poor will sing chant songs outside of the debt collector's house, this kind of thing. But it's such madness. (laughs) 
and it's so it's so much excess that when it's over, it's like the order breathes a sigh of relief. And in fact, carnivals are most powerful and popular in countries and in places in which there's a very strong um, drift between high and low. Um, when the um, the foundational ideal of communitas, as Victor Turner calls it, um, there's a great drift. You know, the communitas is the founding ideals of the society, like what it's based on, um, which isn't what actually exists usually. Like our founding ideals are things like equality and stuff like that. But obviously, materially, we don't have that. We have like formal kinds of equality, um, but not it, we don't actually live that out. So there's this huge drift between our communitas, our ideals, and how we actually live. And in these kinds of situations, you have these carnivalesque outbur- outbursts that b- underscore that communitas. Hey, we're supposed to have equality. Hey, you know, we yell at people and we have this big party. Um, but it cleanses the social order. Um, it was one of the very first papers I ever wrote, actually, is on carnivalesque pr- protest. And people can still look it up. The magazine I wrote it in was punk, but... Um, I think I probably uploaded it to something at some point. Anyways, um, but that's what Carnival was. Um, that's what the anthropological, one interpretation of Carnival within anthropology was about, was how it is a safety valve for tensions that might otherwise erupt in revolution. It allows you to role play um, in this liminal space, this betwixt and between. And it doesn't actually, people would say like, I remember in the 2010s, you had all these carnivalesque protests. And people like, oh, Carnival is revolution itself. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's it's um, the world turned upside down so that you appreciate when it's right side up. That's the point of it. Like when you have this big display and everything's like crazy and people are walking around in assless chaps and stuff and with kids around <laughs> and you're like, uh, and then, you know, the next day and then you can't get through the city center. And then the next day it's like the city breathes a sigh of relief as the normal routine returns. Were you thinking about Occupy Wall Street? When you talked about the carnivalist protest? Um, no, I think this was before Occupy, actually. Was it before Occupy? Well, Occupy or, was 2011. Yeah, it was before Occupy. It was in 2010 I wrote that article. Mm, um, it was actually just before my 25th birthday, 24th birthday, something like that. <laughs> so I was, quite, I was quite young. It was one of the first things I wrote for publication. Um, but no, it was just, I, I was, you know, I go to these protests and I felt kind of uneasy about what we were really doing. Um, and I suppose that all came to a head in, in these sort of Occupy protests, which were the world upside down for a short period of time. And through that experience, people kind of, I think people kind of realized, oh, it's not enough. Right. I, I remember during Occupy, what I really wanted to have happen was for people to get together and all like maybe that i had these brendan i had found these um brendan cooney videos uh, yes i thought were really really good and i thought oh we should have a mass showing of these videos and then discussion groups break out afterwards and i just wanted people to confront the foundation the foundational problems that had set up the economic crisis that they were responding to um rather than what I saw happening, which was that everyone broke off into little clusters and simply expressed what they already believed. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course I would be expressing what I already believed, but it was something I'd come to through the crisis. I hadn't started there. So I'll defend my, my 
uh, decision to push Brendan Cooney as my stand-in for Marx back in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, well, I was reading Capital at that time, so Brendan Cooney's videos were were, were quite um, well-timed for me. Right, um, but, yeah. but what we didn't have was any kind of, we had this carnivalesque occupation of parks around the country and around the world, but we didn't have any institutionalized way to um, bring people together to work on, uh, to intellectually work on problems. Um, <clears throat> and we didn't have any even uh, agreement that that was needed, right? If there was, what was needed was activism and or prefigurative politics, uh, yeah. people thought. Um, yeah, and, and there was, yeah, there was a strong sort of rejection of intellectualizing this kind of like um, this legacy of sort of early 2010s politics, late 1990s kind of politics, where it was like a rejection of, well, a response to the fall of the Berlin Wall and that this was really the end of all of that kind of thinking. And we had to do something totally new. Um, and I remember when I was a teenager, you know, moving around in sort of anarchist circles and it was like, oh, Marx, ooh, he's this like staunch kind of economistic, deterministic theorist. What we need is something more fluid and free flowing. That's where there's very strong kind of rejection of that and this rise of sort of lifestyleism, that it was something, the politics was something that you lived out. And I think this sort of came to a enormous uh, fizzling out with the Occupy movement, where it really became the limits of, you know, politics that ended we used to say socialism in one person this like politics that ended in the individual and how that individual lived and it was a lot of this sort of prefigurative stuff and this obsession with process and you know leaderlessness as a virtue and it, it the goal was the protest yeah <clears throat> and um i remember varn said at the time that occupy represented the death of anarchism although it it would come back uh, again, during the George Floyd protests, it was a very big uh, tendency within those. Um, but what do you think this has to do with the undermining of of uh, the human subject as the the you know kind of the initial point for political action and for social change? I mean, and and um, do you think that the problem? Uh, that we can, ha and how do we overcome some of the criticisms of the human subject that developed in the 20th century, starting with Freud? Um, uh, and you know, do do you do you see those kinds of critiques as coming from the enemy camp, the people who want to hold on to the status quo? Um, what kind of critiques? Critiques that are psych psychoanalytic or psychological, or that are aiming at describing the human psyche of having a certain kind of structure, which therefore yeah. limits. It comes, from, it comes from both sides. It comes from both sides because um, the left is arguing, is just absolutely determined to argue with and destroy um, uh, adversaries that have been dead for like a hundred years. That's like, <laughs> they're, they're fighting against something that doesn't exist anymore. So they think that it's like, progressive to argue against the idea of rational human subjects because they have like a vague sense that it has something to do with um, capitalism and, and economics. And then the right wants to argue against human subjectivity and sort of locate problems within psychology because 
obviously they are essentially conservative and it's in their interest to say this is just the way things are and no attempt will to make things better is ultimately going to change anything because the way society is is simply an outgrowth and a reflection of human nature and capitalism has always been around and simply reflects something intrinsic to human beings and of course a lot of their explanatory modes obviously i'm grouping together like enormous and heterogeneous groups of people here but um in general the idea is that um um you know their their sort of explanatory framework is based on um human frailty and human weakness so like why do we have these problems well they don't come from capitalism they don't come from the market they come from people who try to intervene and kind of screw things up um and so they have at their heart this sort of misanthropic basis and you can see this going all the way back to the first sort of conservatives like um Thomas Malthus arguing that the reason why you know against um the more optimistic people of the French Revolution, arguing that, you know, the reason why we don't have equality on earth is because it's just human nature. This is just the way things are. Um, it's always a battle between sex and food, and, and they'll just cancel each other out over again and again. You have lots of food, you have too much sex, there's too many babies, then you run out of food, and so on and so on and so on. It's always going to be that way. And this is just, it's the baseness of humanity that leads to the baseness of society instead of the baseness of society leading to the baseness of, of humanity. Um, and so, but both sides then sort of degrade the human subject. And then of course you have like the hegemony of uh, American politics going all over the world. Um, and so I like, especially American politics is extremely therapeutized and extremely psychologized. Um, and so you get this kind of leaking out into places that never really had this kind of, um, uh, left-wing infection <laughs> in in politics so it's starting to creep into places like young people in um, in Greece for instance and have always had this very you could say like fossilized kind of Stalinist uh, communist party but that used to win a pretty good portion of the vote um, and now if you look at a lot of the young people in Greece I, th I find it to be a little bit depressing um, just how much psychologization has made its way into these movements um, that start to become about like personal grievance and offense taking and all these sorts of things with a little bit of a delay. Always, it's always like this when stuff comes from America, it usually diffuses really quickly to English, spe English speaking countries and it takes a little bit of time to get into non-English speaking countries. So there's a little bit of a delay. You start seeing the rise of like grievance politics in places that like, almost had a communist revolution within more or less living memory. Um, and that's, that's kind of depression, uh, depressing, um, to use a word that's totally wrong for this conversation. <clears throat> that's, that is um, discouraging. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, to see, like, this is the thing, these words, they permeate our vocabulary. So we don't say like, I'm discouraged or I feel anxious about something. I said, I have anxiety. I am, you know, we use these words. Mm -hmm. It's just this sort of like therapeutic vocabulary that permeated our everyday speech. Um, and yeah, it's the century of the self, you know, anybody who's interested, who hasn't seen it yet, go watch those Adam Curtis documentaries, which if you haven't seen them, I mean, they're like part of growing up. I think everyone should watch these documentaries. But yeah, it's sort of the legacy of Freud, um, but it goes back much, much further. And I'm not totally sure why it took over so much in the United States. 
But generally, I think that this psychologization narrates an impasse, um, that we have not been able to um, bridge the gap between the present and, and the future, or even like realize the promises of bourgeois revolutions for like equality and brotherhood and so on. We don't really live in a world of equality. Um, and of course, like we always say in solution, uh, we always talk about um, the fact that socialist revolutions in the 1800s were trying to, you know, they were like, no, you need to have another revolution. If any of this is going to be real, you can't have equality in a world that is in, in a world that's fundamentally based on, on inequality and exploitative relationships to the extent that they were kind of aware of that um, in the 1840s. But um, so that we've not really been able to get beyond that. And so as we keep trying and failing, um, we locate these problems more and more in the human soul, in the human mind, and they become more and more naturalized. Um, and so, you know, you can see this in eugenics and eugenics being the most extreme version of this tendency to individualize social problems to see them as lying within the human brain. Um, but there's like, you know, uh, softer versions of this that are about rehabilitating the subject and so on but the underlying explanatory model is the same like if things go wrong it's there's something wrong with with you and i think that so i think that this this destruction of subjectivity is a real destruction it's it, we really are as human human beings incapable and have been incapable of realizing our freedom in the sense of like we have a certain amount of freedom that we wouldn't have had as peasants the famous line we always say you were born a peasant in feudalism you were born a peasant you died a peasant that was just it in capitalism you could be born a peasant and go die somewhere else <laughs> a worker you know and, and after having several jobs or maybe you could go be a Rockefeller I don't know I don't know if they yeah. ever came from peasants who knows there probably was some family that were a bunch of Irish potato famine I don't know <laughs> but it's unlikely, but it is possible. There's some movement. The the class structure is yeah. There's there's social mobility. There's some yeah, social mobility, of course. Um, and but we're not fully free. We still that structure is still there. You move up and down, um, but the structure is still there. Um, you are free to choose whatever capitalist will take you. Uh, will buy your labor power, but you are not free to not do that. And all these sorts mm. of things. Like everybody's equally prohibited from sleeping on a park bench. But that's only meaningful for some people, obviously. Um, so we have, and we've never been able to overcome this, right? So we have not figured it out. We tried in the 20th century and it produced all sorts of horrors and it's become more and more naturalized and just entrenched. There is no alternative. This is just it. And so that, that destruction of the free willing subject, the subject capable of exercising free will reflects in an important way a real loss of freedom at the same right. time as it also so we have no capacity for control but also sort of returning to the question of youth which we're going to talk about in more detail on the sublation magazine show mm -hmm. which has yet to be recorded but will be out by the time we we have this uh this out right we're gonna doing that on <clears throat> we will have done that on monday and i what i have down for us is that we're going to be talking about is it about youth primarily or yeah so we're kind of sort of laying the foundation now where we're talking about kind of general problems with subjectivity and tomorrow we're going to go more why can't people why can't why people grow up people grow up right <laughs> right 
And so the question that I that will sort of go into a little bit in, in that in that Sublation Magazine episode called Why Can't People Grow Up is also, I think, so there's a real loss of subjectivity in the sense that we've lost our freedom. Uh, in the sense, like we've tried to exercise, human beings have tried to exercise their autonomy on the world by trying to understand the world and bend it to their will, for instance, in the Soviet Union. But if you were a right winger, you could, or like, not if you're, if you're a right winger, you could also say, Nazism, an extreme attempt to do this as well, you know, the subject of absolute self-creation um, that, you know, leads to this attempt to change human nature really physically, of course, based on, a, on an idea of, um, of, of social problems as being an outgrowth of humanity, as opposed to Marxism, which is an outgrowth of society. Um, but yeah, so we tried to do that and that, and that it didn't work. But also we have, there's no place for us, for a lot of people. There's a lot of so-called excess population, which is, no, there's no such thing, obviously, as excess population when every human mind is a mind that can think and hands that can work and be creative and whatever. But there's no place for a large amount of, of people. Um, and so in that sense, you have a limited, a more and more limited space to exercise your humanity, to express your humanity um, through work, even alienated work. Um, and so this becomes an issue as well. I think that it kind of fits into the dis destruction of our subject ideally is a real material loss of freedom. You know, um, one of the things I am struggling with is again, is the how we can, uh, embrace our free, the, the possibility of our free subjectivity you know, the, our individuality um, without participating in uh, the reproduction of not only capital relations, but also the, you know, uh, the superstructural uh, understanding of those relations through therapy culture, say, right? Um, and uh, an analogy that comes to mind is that the just as like, but when it comes to understanding the world situation right now, the, the conflict in Ukraine, for, as an example, one of the things you have to resist is taking up um, some unstated assumptions about the world uh, and, and including them in your uh, uh, analysis. So one of the unstated assumptions about the world is that Nations all have individual particular interests and are in opposition to each other by, mm -hmm. by, by, by just by nature, just innately that that's how nations are, <clears throat> uh, this sort of realism. And right now that realism can be found just as easily on the, amongst the peace movement as it is, um, you know, in the, um, amongst the neoconservative hawks, um, which happen to help be Democrats for the most part. Um, so, like from from my perspective, what's more useful is to ask the question: Why can't the neoliberal project, or even just um, the overall capitalist project, live up to its um, ambitions? Like, why is it that Fukuyama was wrong? Why why didn't the Soviet Union get incorporated into the world liberal modern culture? Why why was uh, so the, the former Soviet Union never becoming part of, you know, never became part of, why did it never become part of NATO? Why, why are, why are these different parts of the world in opposition with each other? Um, rather than saying, oh, they're naturally that way. 
And so yeah. the, the same question arises when it comes to our human subjectivity and individuality. Why is it that we find it so difficult to believe in our own rationality and uh, operate on the level of rational subjects who are trying to organize together politically? It, it just it seems that we run up against not only objections to rationality, some critiques of it, but also um, on some level uh, uh, realms in which the, the reason doesn't seem to be operative. Um, and, but that doesn't mean we need to abandon reason or just accept the, that human beings are by nature unreasonable just any more than we accept that nations are by nature in opposition to each other. But, Rather, we have to examine what has gone wrong with the our pro, with the bourgeois project for individuality and human reason. Do you think that's a fair approach? To or is that more? Am I falling into? Am I going to end up in therapy culture again? Like going down that road? I don't know. I, I kind of catch myself doing this too. That's why I kind of I always have to think. Well, when you describe a problem, ideally you kind of have to think, well, what problem are people, what problem empirically are we narrating? You know, what story are we telling about an impasse in the world, something that we've come up against? Um, and I think generally when you said like, why do we find it so hard to exercise our reason in the world? Is that what you kind of said? I feel, I think we do. Like we do all the time. Um, when we try to like, solve problems and like on mass you can see people doing all sorts of things without necessarily even coming together and being conscious in the sense of like a class conscious thing of uh, or a, a program people do all sorts of things like as a way of solving problems as trying to like overcome capital's attempt to starve them you know people will come together and they will strike or they will resign uh, and then capital kind of pushes back and tries to individualize some of that angst. And I think that's part of the reason is that we're constantly fighting against capital's tendency to try to separate us. Um, and you can see this like in very obvious terms. It's, it's harder to see. So two examples. Um, one is, well, first, second one is China. But the first one is things like stress like work-related stress. It's a very good book published like tw over 20 years ago now, my God. It's a very good book called um, The Rise of the Work Stress Pandemic or something like that, Epidemic, um, by, um, oh, I can't remember now, who, uh, at the University of Kent. Oh, I can't believe I've forgotten the authors. Wainwright and Kalman, Wainwright and Kalman, um, The Rise of the Work Stress Phenomenon. And they talk about how... Um, the word stress didn't really exist in the public vocabulary uh, until the 1960s, um, which is amazing because if you think about the Industrial Revolution, um, people worked in pretty horrific circumstances. You know, like there was no workplace safety. Little children would be hired because they had little hands that could fit into machines to unclog them. <laughs> you know, you had people's limbs ripped off. People regularly working like and you can see this in capital and then in and in Engels um Engels stuff on the condition of the working class, just like the horrific circumstances that people lived in and and worked under and died in. And they didn't use the word stress to make sense of it. 
And in many ways, stress is a very individualized, psychologized, it's an internal kind of way of making sense of the negative experience of work. And what people were trying to do is what Wainwright and Kalman described is what people were trying to do is they were trying to draw attention to um, the negative experience of work and especially different forms of work in like a transitioning to service economy. Um, where you couldn't say like you were hurting somebody's body in a mine or whatever, but you, you had to say, no, well, there's a different kind of exploitation that's going on here. And so this word stress, it's more complicated than that, but just for the sake of a clear narrative. Um, this word stress kind of comes up to describe this experience of work. And the idea was to, you know, have a radical restructuring of work, a radical critique of exploitation in some forms. But the result was, as they say, minimal and therapeutic. Um, it was that that was very easily incorporated and it probably even I'm not sure I can't remember now but probably had its origins in management or you know I can well imagine that being like a wonderful idea dreamed up by management I, I don't think it was it was initially I think something on behalf of workers but at the very least it was incorporated and you get counseling for it now um, and you don't get a restructuring of work you get well-being Wednesdays and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember going to one of these things for purely ethnographic reasons um, to, you know, participant observation. And I was like an hour of being like, mm, breathe in through your mouth and healthy, you know, and uh, clear your mind and blah, blah, blah. Don't picture an elephant. I don't know. All sorts of stuff. And the whole time I was just thinking like, this is a whole freaking hour in which I need to be working because my workload is so high. But now how am I supposed to catch up on this hour? And another thing, like this happens with all sorts of things where these things get incorporated and then they become another thing in, as part of your job. <laughs> so like they notice that there are lots of women, there aren't enough women as CEOs and on boards. So they have these like, oh, well, we need strong female role models. So if there's a woman who's successful, she gets to mentor everybody else, which means that she has to take time out to complete some sort of mentoring scheme that is now part of her job and job description. Whereas men don't have to do that. They can just go on and continue achieving in their jobs. But women now have this thing where they, and she's like, it's just an extra flipping thing. Well, sorry, she's like, this is my sister telling me that this is an, <laughs> I've got a picture in my mind of my sister. And my sister's having to do this at the moment. And she's like, this is just an extra thing on my list that I have to do. And I'm really jealous because the men don't have to do this, but I do. Um, anyways, so now like this, like well-being thing, I felt like also this a little bit of pressure that everybody's going, so I should probably go and did like, anyways, it becomes yet yeah, another thing that you have to do, uh, this like training manual that you have to do to manage your stress and so on. And it individualizes it. And the second example, uh, um, is, is China where it's a little bit more obvious where obviously you had, um, people who had a certain expectation that they would be more or less taken care of by the state. And I don't mean taken care of, but I mean like you were supposed to have a job. And then you had neoliberalization, which you know pushed people out of work, closed down factories and so on. And uh, people were pissed off. And a lot of the workers took over those factories and continued running them. And this was seen as a very dangerous thing by the Chinese Communist Party, ironically. And, um, uh, and so they... I keep, I always talk about this book. It's a very good one, Unnodding the Heart by Yang Ji. And she talks about how therapeutic culture was um, very explicitly used and sort of translated, localized, you know, into sort of local Chinese customs and so on to expressly individualize the discontent of having lost your job. 
So oh, this is you have depression. It's a very sad thing, and it's this, and using all these words people would be familiar with, and they come and bring them like a bag of flour and so on. They just made it very clear to people: your anger is individual. Your anger is an individual feeling that you must manage on your own uh, or with careful guidance of an outside party, not on your own, because that's quite dangerous. And it's interesting because there's this there's this enormous bias of therapeutic books um and getting them sort of translated into chinese or into um well say into chinese um why they're not even like reading the book they're just buying up therapeutic books en masse for sale in the chinese market my book has been translated into chinese because it has happiness in the title (laughs) (laughs) um so you know this therapeutic culture is very expressly being used as an illiberal kind of way of of individualizing discontent um, and uh, ensuring that people kind of stick to a given highly undemocratic plan. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, when I so the the question becomes, why is it that we um, end up in therapy culture? You kind of described the, some of the ways in which it appears. Yeah. So, my, um, but my 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 point was that it is. Us, like when we try to solve a problem, like taking over a factory, it is in, capitalist, in capitalism's interest to reduce that problem or transform that problem into something individual. This individualization is a, um, is a, like, a, it yeah, I mean, that, that, this is the thing. Like, I, I, I we want to be individuals and we want, as, the whole notion of bourgeois subjectivity and reason is that it, it resides within the individual, but it doesn't reside within the individual in an, the atomized individual who can't think of their, his or her needs as being collective. Like you have mm-hmm. to be able to think collectively and to participate um, in a collective public reason in order to be an individual, I think. And um, so as again, to go back to Ukraine, um, when we are faced with the situation uh, of the invasion of Ukraine and the escalation of the conflict in Ukraine, um, we don't have a way to think collectively about it that isn't defined by, at the very least, the fragmentation that leads to these kinds of conflicts. So we're already, you know, shelved in along with other people who are aligned with one fragment or another, or, you know, just we're encouraged not to think about it at all because we're just an atomized individual who can do nothing about the situation whatsoever. So, I mean, our options right now when it comes to Ukraine tend to be conceived of as either opposing American hegemony and therefore siding with uh, the Russian and, and Chinese states in a, in, in this emerging conflict this deepening conflict or um opposing the brutal brutal dictatorships and totalitarianism of russia and china and ending up siding with the relatively more progressive and democratic west um and that that's how things fall and you, it doesn't and you don't even know where you're going to land based on what you say your politics are. You could be a right-wing conservative and fall uh, on the side of China and Russia. You could be a left-wing radical and fall on the side of China and Russia. And, and, you know, the reverse is true as well. 
And so, but what we, what I want people to ask themselves is how is it that the totality of this system, not just the U.S., although we could look to NATO to start with, since that's where most of the power is, seemingly, seemingly, how is it that this conflict is emerging and why do we allow it to be acceptable? Why can't, why is this an acceptable uh, working out of, of economic and political differences? You know, because especially Putin considering the nuclear evil. wars in the, in, you know, in the background here. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, because Putin is evil and mm. he might have, um, might be on steroids and uh, he's just a bad, bad man. What do you think, Doug? <laughs> Yeah, but also Biden is senile and he's definitely on steroids. <laughs> and I don't know if he's a bad, bad man, but he might be evil in the, you know, because evil is banal. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I'm not I don't think any of these explanations help uh, us uh, organize collectively. But what we need to do to organize collectively, I mean, in order to be individuals and be and engage with the pro with the problems of the world rationally and through our our best aspects which are you know which are gu guided by or governed by reason we're going to have to develop an independent politics we have mm -hmm. to be free from the way in which the world is already fragmented at least in our ambition you know which which a, a politics a universal politics um it has to be the aim um uh for a, a left worth supporting um, you know what? I I want to. We're about at fifty minutes in here. Where we've had, I think we're at the end of the first section. But do you feel comfortable? Have you read "Wokeness Is Here to Stay" by Sylvie Zizek in Compact Magazine? Oh, everyone's been talking about it, but I had a whole bunch of uh, proofs come in, and I had to go through my proofs, so I haven't actually looked at it yet. But uh... well, maybe I could talk to you a little bit about it, and you could in the second half we'll see how it goes because i'd like to um i'd like to talk about in the in the parrot room about wokeness and transgender politics and oh great yeah. um, okay uh, so that's what we'll because do because i just feel like in talvestock and whether or not uh trans women should go to women's prisons and uh, and sports and all of the things that will get me canceled i want to talk about them in the parrot room if you hate my guts and would like to see me canceled Come and pay $5 a month to get access to all oh, the ways right. in which I'm going to be Yeah, we definitely say some cancelable things in there. It worries me greatly. Um, but I just wanted to say, too, like, to, to round out the point that I had made when I was mm -hmm. talking about, like, it individualizes. Now, you might mm -hmm. think that then the goal is that you should adopt a kind of subjectivity that is, like, communal or whatever. But no, no, you must sublate the individual. So that you have to understand, like, Marx starts out, like, the German ideology Marx and Engels start out the German ideology with a with a critical questioning of how bourgeois economists had constructed society as emerging out of this individual Robinson Crusoe figure, like the bourgeois idealist set apart from society. And Marx says, no, um, all of these things emerged out of history and so on and so forth. And this particular understanding of the individual only becomes possible at a particular time. Now, ironically, it is only through a highly socialized um, means of production, which is now we our means of production are highly socialized. There's a very complex division of labor. We are so embedded in society. Paradoxically, that is what allows us to be more individual than we have ever been, freer as individuals than we have ever been. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so with a full socialization of the means of production, we will not be like, um, I don't know, right of spring kind of like uh, fully, I don't know, <laughs> I'm trying to think communal kind of beings uh, fully, envel fully enveloping our desires with that of society or subordinating them to society. No, you will be freer to be an individual than you are now to express your creativity or whatever, because the means of production will be so fully socialized um, and you will be able to be, you know, a fisherman in the morning and talk philosophy in the evening without having to be any of those things, which is in the past, you would have been that you would have been a shoemaker. You would have been a woman who cared for your homestead or whatever you, that would have been the essence of who you were. And now you can have the full formed individual in the future. So it's not that we, yes, we can critique individualization, but you don't want to go too far and just reject that and pause it instead like a, a, an individual that is subordinated to society. No, you demand the true individualization. The problem with the individualization that the Chinese Communist Party is doing is that they're doing the same thing as the Robinson Crusoe figure, where everything just grows out of the brain. And that's the problem. It's like the, the starting point is the isolated individual instead of realizing that these things are part of society um, and that we can through other people recognizing their same individual interests that are shared, um, we can fight for a full socialization of production um, in which our needs are met, are actually met without the threat of starvation. And this will allow us to be fully free as individuals. The, the question is, how do we start to develop a politics to create those conditions when we haven't yet arrived at uh, the kind of full uh, individual uh, life that we are we're aiming to create you know mm -hmm. when we're fragmented and and you know mired in uh not only the idea ideology of of individual individualism meaning that everything just springs from your your brain but also you know uh confronted with uh, many material incentives to play along with that ideology and and no apparent way to politically organize against it what you know what do we do to do next and and the question i guess we're going to cover in the parrot room is is the first step towards uh organizing an independent politics going to be the defeat defeating of wokeness or not okay and and should we cancel zizek yeah and should we cancel zizek and i i'm going to say uh you know, I'm always wanting to kill the father, but uh, maybe not this time. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>